talked a little bit about the cover, uh, uh, and I also noticed an 18 plus uh, on the on one of the versions. Mm. So tell me what Davori is. Well, I mean, Davori is the Russian term. It literally means thieves, um, but which essentially refers to the members of a particular organised crime subculture. Um, in some ways, they, they're the equivalent of, I don't know, the maiden men of the Italian Cosa Nostra or whatever. You know, so they're, they're, they're the insiders. They are the members of the Voroskoi Mir, the thieves' world. Because that's very much what the book is looking at. It's actually looking at the people who make up this criminal milieu. Can you tell me what sort of uh, similarities there is between the Italian understanding of a mafia that we would understand mostly here in pop culture? and what you've discovered in, in the Russian understanding, and perhaps bringing it right home, is there any British uh, comparison to, to Devore as you explain it? I've often felt that Italians and Russians are more similar than one might think. Um, the Italians are the Russians whom God blessed rather than cursed with poor climates and bad soils and such like. Um, and in that respect, I mean, there, there are definite similarities, because. The Mafia, the Italian Mafia, at the height of their power, I mean, they've now, like the Russians, changed, represented an, an alternative structure of values, an, an alternative structure of authority figures, an alternative way of basically running society. And in their own way, the Vori did too. The difference, the big difference, is that you might say the Italian Mafia looked outwards. They wanted to control society as a whole. Whereas the Vori are very much looking inwards. They turn their back on mainstream society and they basically just simply try to control their own subculture. And in that respect, I mean, whether we're talking Mafia or whether we're talking Vori, we are precisely talking about very distinct subcultures. And that you don't really get in the UK. We've got lots and lots of criminals, lots and lots of um, firms, small gangs with their own turfs and such like, and some will come from different ethnic backgrounds and different regions and so forth. But that sense of a distinct subculture with its own ways of looking at the world, that we don't have in the UK. The Vori, as we understand them, very much are Stalin's children. Um, one can look at the, the prehistory, and in some ways, if you look at the 19th century, I mean, clearly they, they were all kind of bandits and, and gangsters before then, but not anything that, like we would consider a distinct subculture. In the 19th century, there were two potential evolutionary routes that organised crime could have taken. There was the rural version, which was dominated by horse thieves, uh, which actually, we, it might sound relatively trivial, but the horse was the absolutely central element of Russian rural society. The loss of a single horse could damn a village to starvation, and likewise acquiring new horses could well mean the difference between marginal survival and, and doing quite well. Um, so you know, horse thieves became increasingly organised, efficient, and they even developed their own trans-regional economy. Because you couldn't steal a horse from one village and sell it in the next, because just the same way as you couldn't steal a car and then just go to the next door neighbour and say, would you like to buy a car? Um, well, likewise, you know, the horses had to be, for want of a better word, laundered. And therefore they were sold to professional horse dealers, they were moved across boundaries and swapped for others. You actually had a surprisingly sophisticated economy that built up around these gangsters. However, this turned out to be an evolutionary dead end. Really, it was World War I and the Civil War and the state's voracious desire for horses that basically brought an end to it. 
The second, and what turned out to be the successful evolutionary route, was in the cities. The cities of a time when, when Russia was going through a massive urbanisation and modernisation period. And as is always the way with industrialization, there were many losers. And this being Russia, the losers were particularly badly off. You had these uh, terrible slums, the Yami, the pits, that one saw in all the major cities, particularly Moscow's Khitrovka, the Haymarket in St. Petersburg, which basically became no-go areas. The state didn't care about them. The police, when they went in, would go in and hold platoons, rifles cocked. Um, and here, the, the miserable, the disenfranchised, the disenchanted, the desperate and the predatory, in a way, found themselves a, a separate world. And here is where we see the emergence of the so-called Vorovskoy Mio, the thieves' world, this sense of a separate subculture. And interestingly, because these were people who felt that mainstream society had turned their back on them, they in, in turn internalised a sense where they would, they would turn their back on the mainstream society and its values and morals. And, and this, is, this is where we really see the emergence of organised criminality. But it was in. It was a subculture, but it wasn't an organisation. There were no princes running the Russian underworld. And then along came the gulags. And you had this phenomenal whirlwind of terror and uh, uh, collectivization, which is essentially going to sweep hundreds of thousands, millions of people into the gulag system. Now, what was originally started as an essentially political campaign to break any potential resistance to Stalin's state quickly also became an economic instrument. Modernization would take place in part with the virtual slave labor. And well, the state wanted to be able to run these camps as efficiently and as cheaply as possible, rather than hiring and having to pay lots and lots of prison guards. Instead, what they did is they turned to the career criminals, the Vori, as their trustees, their foremen, their, their control mechanism inside the camps. Now, to cooperate with the authorities is an absolute taboo within the code of the Vorovskoy Mir. It was central to their code. But nonetheless, some people were tempted um, by the chance of you know, chance of survival, better food, just simply be able to throw your weight around within the camps. And these, the scabs, the suki, um, you know, became a separate branch. Now, until the end of World War II, in a way, the, the traditionalist thieves, the Blatnia, and the collaborators largely kept themselves to themselves. They didn't really sort of compete with each other, and they both predated on the ordinary criminals. And anyone who's read any of the miserable gulag memoirs of the time, will know, will know the, sort of the role of gangsters as being agents of the state, but also just generally a predatory figure within the camp system. But it was after World War II, when first of all you had the return to the camps of criminals who had volunteered or been forced to serve in the ranks, which as far as the traditionists were concerned made them collaborators, and you also had the return of prisoners of war. You know, Stalin's view had been that Soviet soldiers should fight until they died. Therefore, you have the ghastly spectacle of, again, thousands upon thousands of Soviet soldiers who've been captured in war, managed to survive Nazi concentration camps, then being gathered up at gunpoint, sent back on railways to filtration camps, and many of them then being sent to Stalinist concentration camps instead. But likewise, because they had served in the ranks, as far as the traditionalists were concerned, they were also collaborators with the state. So in other words, the, the, the proportion of collaborators expanded dramatically. The two wings could no longer ignore each other. And you had this um, internal underworld civil war that rips through the camps. 
that leads also to a whole series of risings and so forth. Um, in the period from, from the mid, well, late 40s to, to the mid 50s. And this, first of all, it makes the camps pretty much ungovernable. I mean, the reason why Khrushchev opened the camps was not just simply because he was a nicer person than Stalin, hard, questionable whether he was, but certainly because just the camps no longer made sense economically. Um, and it meant that the code had been rewritten because the, the victors from this civil war were the collaborators. And so in a way, they took the old criminal code but they just simply revised the element about collaboration. It became okay to collaborate in your interests with the state or with corrupt officials within the state. So when the camps were opened after Stalin's death, they could go out and dominate the Soviet underworld with this new code. First of all, we have to understand that the Russians, it's interesting, they don't really have within their culture the Robin Hood mythology. The sense of you know, the, the criminal who actually has a heart of gold and is there on the side of, of the masses. What they do have, though, is a clear distinction between honest thieves and dishonest thieves. That the, the tattooed hard men from the gulags, not nice people, but they are at least honest thieves. They make no pretenses about what they are. The dishonest thieves are the ones who are wearing suits or uniforms or judges' robes and are meant to be on the side of society but are actually just as predatory. Um, and, and this distinction, you know, so, so everyone's bad, but at least some people are bad and honest, really came up in, in the late Soviet times. And through the, the late 60s and through the 1970s, the Soviet Union had become increasingly shaped by corruption and by the black economy, as the, the party just became more and more venal, and also as the economy just ground more and more into the ground. So everyone really had to use the black market. But we saw this massive change in the Gorbachev years. I feel quite sorry for, for, for Gorbachev as, as the last believer trying to reform this system and instead he created perfect grounds for, for, for criminality. You had, first of all, the anti-alcohol campaign. Um, I mean, the risk of, of being a bit cliched, but anyone who tries to get between the Russian people and their booze is already <laughs> cruising for a bruising. Um, and there was a huge demand that, just as with prohibition in the United States, was essentially handed to the criminals, because the existing black marketeers couldn't possibly cope with the, with the massive demand. And so this is when, for most ordinary Russians, Soviet citizens as a whole, it was their first time when they really encountered organised crime, because in the, in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, organised crime that existed but largely behind the scenes, largely kind of facilitating the work of the black marketeers and corrupt party bosses. So the first time they met the gangster was not as a predator coming to shake you down for money, but as the service provider who can get you the booze that you want for your New Year's Eve party, for your daughter's wedding or whatever. Um, and I remember talking to, to one, one criminal who had been a shistyorka, which is like a kind of a, a low-level wannabe um, gangster, accompanying a more senior figure to one of the sort of huge, sprawling housing estates on the outskirts of Moscow in those years. And he said it, it was surreal for him because they would go in and everyone would be their friend, everyone would welcome them. Rabiata, hi lads. You know, and not just what have you got in terms of alcohol, but people increasingly saying, Oh, if you can get us booze, can you also get us cigarettes? Um, my daughter needs to see the doctor. Do you have any contacts? Increasingly, what happened is organised crime became a service provider. And this is the thing about organised crime. Organised crime fills voids. 
It fills areas where the state and legitimate society has failed. Sometimes that's markets and goods. Sometimes that's services. You know, if the state can't protect you, you will go to someone who can, even if they're not particularly nice people. Sometimes it's a gap in the moral economy. The state illegalises things that you, society as a whole, think is, are okay. The more you have those gaps, the more you have market opportunities for the gangsters. I mean, this is one of the subtexts behind my book. It's precisely trying to use looking at organised crime as a way of understanding a couple of hundred years of Russian, Soviet and Russian again history. So yeah, absolutely. In, in, the, in the 1980s, you know, organised crime emerged as a, as a in, in some ways, an ally. Everyone knew that the gangsters weren't doing it because they were nice people, because they were going to make money out of it. But the point is, at least they were there. They were providing what the state, what the dishonest criminals of the state, was trying to deny them. And then when you have the sort of the rise of small-scale private enterprise or the cooperative movement, you know, the gangsters could then also penetrate and control that. In many ways, the 1980s was the ideal decade for the criminals.